Okay, guys, in this pod, we continue and we'll finish the Peter Swales era. This is part three. And uh, joining us to do that, we have David Gregory. How are you doing, David? Very well, thank you. Thank you very much. And we also have, of course, Colin Savage, Pressmitch Blue. Hi, Colin. How are you? I'm good, Mike. I'm good. You? I'm very well indeed, mate. And uh, I think what we what we normally do is we give a little summary, don't we, of where we finished off last time, and then we yep. kick we kick on straight ahead. So I'd like to invite uh, Colin to to get us get us started. Well, if I remember rightly, last time we'd just been relegated for the second time mm-hmm. down to so we're 1986-87 season. Yep, we'd we'd gone down in '83, spent a couple of seasons down, come back up, gone back down. And Billy McNeil had been our manager during the previous season, but he'd accepted an offer to go to Aston Villa. And of course, he was the possibly the first manager to be in charge of two relegated clubs that season, because both us and Villa were relegated. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we go into 87, Jimmy Frizzell had taken over temporarily, mm-hmm. uh, but we'd still gone down. We were three million in debt. So we go into 1987-88, and Mel Machen, who was the uh, Norwich City manager, which kind of echoed John Bond's appointment a few years earlier, was appointed team manager, and Jimmy Frizzell was general manager. I wonder how that so worked. They, well, they, there was some puzzlement about how that worked. Jimmy Frizzell was actually around for quite a long time. And it, and it kind of echoed a little bit the, the, the Mercer Allison, end of the Mercer Allison era, which was a bit unsatisfactory. But it's, Jimmy Frizzell seemed, seemed to be a pretty level-headed character. He wasn't he wasn't a guy that was full of ego like Malcolm was. Um, uh, he wasn't. Th- I don't think he was. Don't recall he was throwing his weight around. So, so Mel Machen was was basically allowed to get on with things, as far as I know. And perhaps Jimmy Frizzell was just there to support him and back him up. Not, not really. Never really seen any stories of that period. So, um, I, I think it worked relatively harmoniously. Apart from the fact that Mel Machen probably wasn't a very good appointment. And it was interesting that certainly that season, would, again, we're down in the second division. The crowds were noticeably down. So the lowest league crowd we had since the, the dark days of 1965 uh, at that time. But we did have certainly one highlight in the early part of the season was a 10-1 victory against Huddersfield. That's right. Which included three hat-tricks. And actually, we, we all remember the 10-1. But we actually played Huddersfield five times that season. Because we also played them in the uh, FA Cup, and the first two games were both drawn and went to a replay, and we won the third replay. <laughs> that was just one of five games against Huddersfield, but obviously it's the one that most people remember. And at the time, obviously we were down in the second division. We had a, we had a, a blend, a decent blend of youth and experience, but it was clear, I think, that they weren't good enough to get us out out of that division. We were selling play, good players to, like Paul Stewart to Spurs for 1.7 million. And I think that season, I think we want to, we don't want to spend too much time on it. There's much more to talk about later on. But I think we did quite well in the Cups. But we, we, we finished relatively low down the um, second division table, well off the promotion places. So there was a lot to do to to get out of that league, basically. And obviously, we've got to get out because we're Manchester City. You know, we've been a big club. We've been successful. And it's one of those kind of crucial periods, as we had kind of 10 years later in the late 90s, where if we don't do something that season, we're going to be a bit stuffed. So, so we get to 88-89. It's also, that was the first season that there's a record of Peter Swales being paid, being a paid director, although he was paid via his company, Peter J. Swales Limited, for consultancy. And the amount he was paid was £26,666. 
for the 1988-89 year. And it's also the start, one of the things that people will most remember about that season, it was the real start of the banana craze, the inflatable craze. This kind of came to a head Boxing Day at Stoke City, where, which was de- fans decided was going to be a fancy dress day. So I wasn't at the game, but all the people I know who were say it was the most bizarre gay experience. There were Nazi stormtroopers, there were vicars, there was a pantomime horse, there was a guy in snorkel flippers and a swimsuit, uh, you know, uh, and everyone had an inflatable, I think there was an inflatable shark there. As I say, this is the season where Peter Swales is starting to become under a little bit of pressure because we're, if we don't do well, really it should be the end for him. But that season, we did move up the table. Machin was doing a reasonable job. Uh, and the other was Paul Lake um, collapsing on the pitch after a collision, head-to-head collision. Uh, I think we were playing Leicester City at Main Road. Swallowed his tongue, isn't that right? Yeah, he sw- well, he swallowed his tongue and um, quite an upsetting occurrence for those who were there. Uh, and the physio, Rob, Roy Bailey, um, struggled to save him, which he did. But uh, it, all in all, it's, I mean, I'm not, again, not going to dwell on this season. It's, it, it's a good season for us. I think Chelsea won the league that season and they were well ahead. So we were never going to catch them. But obviously we were looking to get second place. And we went into the Bournemouth game, which was our penultimate game and our last home game, needing a win to ensure promotion. I think a win pretty well ensured promotion. And we went into that game, obviously very confident. It was a great carnival atmosphere. And we were 3-0 up at half-time. The legend is that, I can't remember if it was that game, that comedian Eddie Large gave the half-time <laughs> team talk. Uh, yes. I'm not sure if, if it was then or it was sometime under Keegan. I think the players relaxed a little bit too much. There was a little bit of overconfidence, a little bit of complacency. And somehow Bournemouth got a goal back early in the second half. They then got a second one back. And then about six minutes into injury time, which no one knew where it had come from, they got a penalty and, and scored that to equalise. So we were left sweating a bit going to Bradford for our final game, where, again, a point would secure us promotion. And uh, we went 1-0 one, one down about halfway through the first half. And it was looking a bit grim for, for a while, but with just four or five minutes left, that seemed to have about 85 minutes, Trevor Morley equalised and got us the point that we needed to get up. There was probably no one more relieved than Swales himself. He knew that that had avoided the storm for the moment. Had we not got that point, had we not gone up, then things would have been difficult for him. But I suspect he would have breathed a big sigh of relief because obviously we were back in the in the first division again. And of course, we had the, the great youth team that had won the 86 FA Youth Cup. They were all starting to mature and, and get through to the first team. We're just going to bring in uh, David here. David, do you have any memories of either that, that end to that season or in, indeed the, the Machin era, which didn't last much longer after that, I, I believe? <laughs> yeah, well, it was uh, not a particularly good appointment. I mean, he's a, a good, down-to-earth, working class sort of guy. Uh, he got on well with the players. He got a lot out of the players. Uh, but he had to contend with the boardroom, where there was constant interference. Paul Stewart scored 28 goals and out of 52 appearances that season um, and was then promptly sold, as, as Colin has reported, for 1.7. Imri Banana got 20 goals in that 87-88 season. The backbone was was you know players that had come through. Paul Molden, as, uh, by 88-89, he's making regular appearances for us. Um, so it it, it was it, it got the job done, and Machen, in fact, got the job done. And for that, I suppose Mr. Swales was extremely grateful. Uh, what I was trying to find was was there any other game 
um, I'm going back to the Huddersfield game in 7th of November, where three different players scored three scored a hat-trick. And I've not been able to find any football match uh, where that has actually happened. Yeah, I can't think of any other stat like that. Of course, the three players were David White, was it uh, Paul Stewart... Tony and Adcock. Tony Adcock. Tony Adcock. That's right. Mm-hmm. And uh, apparently, apparently, they get invited every time. They get invited up to it, the Etihad every time, and they get treated by royalty. And apparently, David White is saying, you know, they they get the free food and they get treated like celebrities every time uh, we play against them every year, so, so long as uh, uh, Huddersfield are in the uh, in the Premier League. But uh, yeah, no, that that was a fantastic time. Yeah, so so you know, Major's got us up. He's done the job. We're, we're back in um, the first division, uh, and we buy. Well, I think one of our most popular buys, Ian Bishop, comes in. Oh yeah, uh, and this was a funny one because obviously we bought Bishop from Bournemouth, and there was stories that uh, Paul Molden was going to go the other way, and Mel Machen denied there was any connection between Bishop coming in and Molden going out. But of course, a week after Bishop came in, Molden went to Bournemouth. And of course, the memorable game of 89-90 season was a certain derby at Main Road. And it's funny because obviously if, you, if we go back to those days and look at United, United were in a bit of a state of flux. They'd appointed Ferguson at this point, but he wasn't doing very well. And there was a lot of fan resistance to him. The, the, the boardroom was in a bit of a shambles. The, um, the Edwards family, I think, just wanted to get out and get some money. And they were prepared to sell the club to Michael Knighton for about, what, 10, 20 million quid, was it? The ball-juggling Michael Knighton. You remember that? ball-juggling Michael Knighton who didn't have the money. We were looking quite decent at that point, and they were looking, you know, a little bit shaky with a, a manager who didn't seem to have the faith of the uh, fans and the board that just wanted to, or, or owner, just seemed to want to get out. So, so the derby was quite an interesting game in that respect. And we weren't doing too well, if I remember rightly. There, there was some crowd trouble relatively early in the game. Some United fans had infiltrated the North Stand and the game had to be halted while that was sorted out and uh, they were moved around to uh, the other end of the, the ground. When the game restarted, it seemed that the break seemed to help us. I think the players got their heads together, the manager had a few words and then we just went on um, went on and tore them to pieces. So everything, you know, everything's looking really good at that point, you know, and, and that was the last victory in any derby until the last one at Main Road. That was the, the Main Road massacre, wasn't it? The goat robbed Gary Neville. But that was that was our last derby victory. But again, you know, we didn't know that at the time, of course, but everything looks pretty good. United in a bit of a disarray. We've just beaten them 5-1, you know, got to be one of Ferguson's worst days in football until a certain derby victory back in 2011. But of course, Something's it's city, so something's always got to go wrong. We, we were going down the table basically, and we got to a point where we were nineteenth in the division. All the players were saying, you know, Machin wasn't doing it; he wasn't good enough. You know, it's like many managers we see, don't we? They can win the champion. You look at Neil Warnock or someone, like Steve Bruce, they could, Ian Holloway. They can do quite well in the championship, but they can't do it in the top league. And, and, and Machin, I think, was no different to any of those. He done, as David said, done a perfectly reasonable workmanlike job for us in the second division. Wasn't good enough for the first. And we were down in 19th position. We drew a game at Charlton. But the, the interesting thing is, what well, I, I read something that suggested that City fans were told by a City official the week before that Machin had to win at Charlton to keep his job. So all the fans knew he, he was on his kind of last legs. Apparently, Machin was asked to resign by Swales. But why you would ask a manager to resign, I'm not quite sure. Uh, and when he refused to resign, because he thought he was doing a reasonable job, Swales sacked him. 
the interesting thing about the matron sacking is instead of Swale saying, well, he just wasn't good enough or, you know, he couldn't cope with the, the first division, Swales blamed the fans for the sacking. And it, it was a kind of almost the first major bit of Peter Swales' deflection. And there was a very memorable um, comment from Swales, a quote from Swales, where he said, Mel Machin had no repartee with the fans. What he meant, of course, was he had no rapport with the fans. But interestingly, talking to a couple of the fanzine editors, Noel Bailey and uh, Dave Wallace, they said the fans quite liked Mel. They obviously weren't happy about being towards the bottom of the division. But the fans, Machin wasn't himself unpopular with the fans. So Swales was blaming fan pressure and the fact that Machin was a fairly quiet guy. He wasn't a big maybe wasn't a big presence, didn't go down well with the fans. They felt they were being asked to take the blame. I don't think anyone had a problem with Machin being sacked, but it was the way the blame was deflected onto us, the fans, rather than the fact he wasn't doing particularly well. And this is where, obviously, the next we're 19th in the division. I think we ended up bottom. Oh, Tony Book took over for a few games, and we ended up bottom. Obviously, you've got to get the managerial appointment right. And Peter Swales wanted Howard Kendall. The problem was, all the reports were saying Ferguson was on the brink of the sack at Old Trafford, and Kendall was the man in the frame for that job. He'd done a good job before Kendall. The problem was, Kendall wanted a clause in his contract that he would be released if another club was interested in him. Because at the time, the England job was possibly coming up. Perhaps he had half an hour in the Everton job. But Swales being Swales wanted something that he would get compensation for if Kendall left to, to go to another club. And there was a bit of an impasse over this. And to try and break the impasse, Swales approached Joe Royal, who was then doing a great job at Oldham. Now, now Swales, um, you know, this, this great negotiator, this great businessman, made a number of cock-ups, basically. Uh, he, he was losing his touch. And he, the news about Royal was announced by Swales as just before a crucial Oldham game. And obviously that kind of fired up the Oldham fans. And, and Joe Royal felt it was a bit presumptuous because though, although he'd been talking to Swales, Nothing had been decided. And Swales was almost saying, well, Joe Royal's my new man. So Royal was a bit hacked off. And the reaction of the Oldham fans convinced him to stay. And also, Swales was stupid because he must have known that Joe Royal would talk to Howard Kendall. They were friends. And Kendall told him, well, yeah, you know, he's been talking to me, but we've it's the whole thing's fallen through because I wanted a clause in the contract that would allow me to leave for another club without compensation. And, and Swales didn't want that. So Joe Royal then realised he was second choice and told Swales basically he wasn't interested in the position and would be staying at Oldham, where, where he was doing quite well. That that left Peter with little choice, really, but to accede to Howard Kendall's demand to put this clause into his contract. And this was to prove a, a crucial issue 12 months down the line. Now, was this a clause that would allow him to join any club or, or, or a particular any club, club? Any club. Any wow. club. Wow. Wow. And in fact, I can't remember when it, exactly it was, but the England job became vacant. And uh, Swales, of course, was chairman of the International Committee. Mm -hmm. So he was in charge of the new appointment. And I think there were three, three potential candidates, one of whom was Kendall, uh, one of whom was Graham Taylor, and the other, I think, might have been Joe Royal. And Swales actually called Kendall into his office and said, now, now, Howard, about this England job, you don't want it, do you? And, and Kendall said, well, um, <laughs> no, so I think Graham Taylor's going to get it anyway. But that was that was Peter. He wanted to make sure he was covered. So anyway, he's he painted himself into a bit of a corner there. He had to agree to a clause which released Howard Kendall. But anyway, he came in, and, and I think... Uh, 
And this is where he brought in a load of his Everton, old Everton players that he plays in you. But, you know, he got, he had to have, he got some criticism for that. You know, the Everton reserves uh, jibe was thrown at him. But we were in bottom, we were bottom in the division. He needed players he knew he could trust. So you can certainly see it from um, Howard Kendall's point of view. David, were you enthused by the appointment of, of Kendall when it happened? Absolutely. He, he, he was, at that time, a very, very good manager. And for us to actually land a good manager, unaware as we were, fans at the time, uh, the, the contract negotiation, that didn't man- manifest itself for another year. But when you're bottom of the division you've worked so hard to get into – anybody that's going to help you out. And he did bring in uh, Harper and Peter Reid uh, to help him out in that. And yes. and it worked well. We, we, we finished 14th, well away from trouble. And it was the start of a, of a very good 12 months with the for us because he, he, you know, he, he did a very, very good job. He was a very, very good man manager, a uh, very tactically astute guy. And we played some very good football under him. Yeah, I spoke to Paul Lake on a radio show about this, and uh, apparently he was very, very popular with uh, the players and a very innovative tactical manager. So, yeah. Yeah, there are some who say that Kendall was the most uh, technically proficient manager we had up to Pep Guardiola. You know, when you look at managers like um, Roberto Mancini, I mean, I don't think anyone would call Kevin Keegan. Um, You know, technically proficient. Kevin had his way of playing uh, and it suited us quite nicely. But uh, yeah, Kendall was a great manager. Um, It it was a great, Swales was seen to have done a great job Uh, and and things did look up. The one thing about Kendall was, I think what we now know, I think what was suspected at the time was, he himself was a heavy drinker. I've Um, heard stories about that, actually. Yeah, Yeah. well, I mean, I think when it failed for him at Everton after he left City, I think he virtually became an alcoholic, unfortunately, and that's what that's what killed him. He treated the players as adults. So there's a story about they went to a club, they were, I don't know, playing a pre-season, they went to a club, and, and Kendall came in with a load of money and said, get me a drink, and I can't remember who it, who it was, was was ordering the drinks. And he said, well, what do you want, boss? And he said, oh, just surprise me. And whoever it was came up with this Molotov cocktail of, I don't know, gin, brandy, rum, vodka, Kendall necked it in one and said, "Oh, that was good. What's that called? Get me another one." Yeah. So, so they would take the obviously he would take the players out drinking. This was good for this was yeah, in the days where you know heavy drinking was the norm at many football clubs. It wasn't um, you know it wasn't seen to be a bad lifestyle choice, and um, the players liked it. The players liked Kendall. You know, he had one or two of his favourites. Obviously, he brought his own players in. He got rid of the ones he didn't like. Uh, obviously, he brought Peter Reid in, Alan Harper, Ian Bishop. Um, wasn't a favourite of his. And went, neither, uh, neither was Andy Hinchcliffe. He, no, for some no. reason, he, he took against Hinchcliffe, sold him to Everton, and then a year later, when he went to Everton, he moved him on again. Yes. Yeah, they just played so, like that. So, yeah. So, Ch- Trevor Morley went in exchange for Mark Ward. David Oldfield went for Wayne Clark. Adrian Heath arrived. And um, I say, there was there's a bit of a myth that Kendall broke up the, the, the kind of youth cup team, but he didn't really. One or two went, but in general, you know, the White Lake, uh, Redmond was still all there. Uh, and finally, probably towards the end of that season, because the, the transfer window was open until Easter, one of our better signings, uh, now Quinn, came from oh. Arsenal for £800,000. Yeah. Good goalkeeper, Quinny. <laughs> yeah, of course. He made that memorable 
penalty went into went into goal when um, it was Tony Coton was it was sent off. It was. You know, you know those uh, those cheeky boys at ninety three twenty. They when when Bravo was. Uh, Having his uh, troubles at City, they were saying that uh, they were they were talking about who was a better goalkeeper than Bravo, and they said that uh, Niall <laughs> Quinn Niall Quinn was a better goalkeeper than Bravo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was just reading about that, and of course he saved the penalty. I think it was Coulton was sent off. Quinny Quinny went in, saved the penalty, and then he said uh, from the penalty, whoever it was got a corner, and he saved that with he, he managed to catch that in one hand, and that was he said he enjoyed that far more than the um, penalty. And <laughs> there's a story about he went down clutching his leg and Roy Bailey came rushing round. Quinny was enjoying himself so much. Roy Bailey said, what's the matter? What's the matter? And Quinny said to him, Roy, I've got some dirt on my shorts. And, and kind of, you know, it, it, Quinny was loving it, you know, laughing and joking. And that season we finished, say we finished 14th, but, but we were level on points with United. Uh, I think they had a slightly better, they had a better goal difference. But there was definitely, I'm sure David will confirm this, there was definitely a feeling that Howard Kendall would prove a better manager than Alex Ferguson. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we were on the up. They were actually still struggling. What Kendall had shown was this, this it, it was a, it was the human touch that the players, I mean, it's, it's an, an idiom now, you hear it, and I'd run through walls. And I think they would. The players would have done anything. In, if he'd have said, go and stick your hand in that brazier over there, they would have done it because they they believed in him, and you know it, it, history's a funny thing. And you look back and think, if only, if only, you know, if only we had he hadn't have gone to Everton a year later. Who knows what what he could have achieved with City? Because right. he was he was at the height of his powers at that time. He, he, the experience he'd got uh, from management was all coming to the fore, and he would landed at a place that that we loved him. He was enjoying himself. You know, lifestyle aside, that it, it was the way that you, after training they'd all go down the pub and have a few beers, and it was, and that that was something that happened well into the the nineties as well. Yeah, so so we start the nineteen ninety one season, everything's looking good, and at the end, but at the crucial times at the end of October, because Colin Harvey, who was the Everton manager, and he was part of that magical midfield with uh, Alan Ball. And Kendall, uh, he was sacked by Everton, and at that point we were fifth, and United was sixth. So it's very much a case that you know we think anything is possible. And Kendall took the Everton job. You know, the people City tried to talk him out of it, and he said, you know, he said, I've enjoyed the City job. I like City, he said, but my first love is Everton. And actually, one thing I always thought he was—I don't know why—I always thought he was a scouser, Howard Kendall, but he was from the northeast, and uh, one of his school pals at primary school was Brian Ferry. Oh yeah. I didn't know. Kendall's had a difficult time. It's fair to say Kendall had a difficult time from the City fans initially because all these ex-Everton players came in and some of the favourites went. But he got us off the bottom. He saved us from relegation. And we were were starting to see how things were working out. So so from being a bit cynical, the City fans were very upset when Kendall left. And, And Bernard Halford told a story about he was on a transfer tribunal with Kendall a few a good few years later. And he, he said, so as they were finishing, they were, they were going out. He said something to Howard about leaving us was the worst thing you ever did. And he said, Kendall said nothing. He said, but you could see tears in his eyes because uh, Everton didn't work out for him. And he was going so well at City. You know, it was a great shame, Howard Kendall. And at this point, I think it's possible to feel some sympathy for Peter Swales, which is kind of the first, almost the first time, perhaps, <laughs> you know, we felt that way. You know, he, he had appointed a good manager. He backed him. We were, we were going well, and the manager had 
uh, walked out. So, but what everyone wanted, what I think what players wanted, what the fans wanted, was to make Peter Reed manager. Now, obviously, Reed was still playing and playing quite well. You know, Reed was seen as the man to carry on the work that Kensal had started. And Swales made that decision, which was almost probably the right one. But after a few games, I think Reed realised that he couldn't, you know, while he was playing, he couldn't be, he needed an eye on the touchline to keep, you know, keep an eye on things and make some decisions. And, uh, and he appointed a guy called Sam Ellis as his assistant. Mm-hmm. Now, now, Sam Ellis, as it turned out, was something of the Marmite character, as, as people have described. People either loved him or hated him. He either loved or hated... It seems he either loved or hated some of the players. So they either got on with Ellis or you didn't. Ellis was kind of the guy that Peter Reid needed. And, and Peter Reid said a lot of the decision, footballing decisions were made by Sam Ellis because basically he was the manager on the touchline. So he could see where things were going wrong perhaps, where things needed to be changed, and would often decide on the substitutions. But it was still a good season. We finished fifth, the highest uh, place we'd finished for a good few years, and we finished, we're three points ahead of United, who I think would be behind us in six. Yeah, I think Niall Quinn got 21 goals that season, something, something like that. Like, yeah, Again, you know, there's a feeling that we were well off the top spot at that point, I think. I think we're about 20-odd points off the top spot. There's a feeling that, you know, we could perhaps close close the gap a little. Is that figure uh, is that figure right, David, 21? Uh, 22 in, in, in total. He played 46 games in the 1991 season and scored 22 times. I wonder how many of us. them came off his head. Care to uh, get? Well, it, for, <laughs> for, a, for, a, for a big man, he yeah. actually did have. Uh, I mean, I remember once with Victoria, we were sat in the in the north stand. And we'd got a free kick. And I, and I said to her, I said, the, the, sling that ball over. Niall Quinn will win it in the air. And he'll head it down to where it was, I think it was Walsh was standing. And the ball came in. Niall Quinn heads it down. And by the time he's done that, there's nobody there. Yeah. And this guy taps me on the shoulder. He goes, every bloody week, pal. Every bloody week. <laughs> <laughs> but he, so, yeah, he, he, you know. It was a talisman for us. Um, yeah, yeah. And it, th- these these are the times when, you know, your strikers worked in packs and it was just finding somebody that could anticipate what Niall was going to do. But, you know, it, it's a, it, a player that scores 22 goals for you in 46 appearances is pretty damn good. Um, nearest nearest to that was David White with 17 out of 45 in, in that 1991 season. And when you look back on that, finishing fifth, even though you're a long way behind the ultimate leaders, that's a, a good season by our standards of, of the recent years. Niall Quinn's Disco Pants has got a rate as one of the best city songs ever. One of the great football songs, yeah, of course. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, we were twenty, yeah, 21 points off the leaders who were Arsenal. We were in touching point, you know, touching distance of maybe a third-place slot. Liverpool obviously doing quite well at that time. You know, in touching distance of, you know, top three or four. So that was, um, you know, pretty good. So there's a lot. A lot of confidence going into the 91-92 season. Uh, there's an awful lot of confidence. And I should say, at this point, the, the club was becoming profitable. Our, our turnover was £9 million. We were making profits uh, profit of 630 k We were paying down the bank overdraft of about half a million a year. And we bought Keith Curl for £2.5 million. Which again was another great buy, but this was this was putting pressure on our finances to a to a large degree, and the cracks a bit starting to show a little bit because um, both Reed and Swales are using the Manchester Evening News to kind of send messages to each other. Reed was certainly using the media very effectively 
to put pressure on Swales to kind of back him financially. And Swales was obviously ticking the opposite tack, using the evening news to say that, you know, money's not unlimited, it's not bottomless pit, and we have to be careful about what we spend. But, you know, without going into this season too much, it's another really good season. Uh, in fact, it's a, in some ways, it's a better season because uh, we finish fifth again. But this time, we've got more points. So it was 70 points as against 62 the previous season. And we're only 12 off the top spot. Uh, Leeds won the league. United, though, were starting to come good. So United had come second. But we were, again, only eight points behind them in fifth place. So, again, you know, you just think that, you know, better buys, we carry on like this. Yeah, we then become an established top four club, really. Everything's looking really good. And we go into 92-93, of course, is the first season of the Premier League proper. And, and, and the irony is, of course, everything's going, as we said, everything seems to be going well which is kind of 15 years, really, after our last successful period in the late 70s. And David White is on fire. The previous season, I think he scored 21. This season, he got nearly that again. I think it was 19 or 20. And yeah, he was he was ripping it up for us, wasn't he? He was, yeah. But uh, very, very good season. In top scorer with 19. Uh, Quinn played 47 games in the 92-93 season. Um, but he'd, he'd had a, an injury 91-92. So he yeah. was... So, oh, sort of coming back from that um yeah it's uh it, you know it, it it was by our standards and you got to express that by our standards we were doing very well keith curl was a, a very under underappreciated defender because he anticipated so much he was very very astute on the field and always managed to be in the place where he needed to be mm-hmm. uh, with that and there was nothing flashy about him uh, but a very, very important player for us at that time. Uh, I was fortunate to be invited to City um, to do a stadium tour. And the guy that took me around, showed me around the place with a, a group of colleagues was Roy Paul. Roy Paul. Yeah, there yeah. was a player. Uh, and he said to me, he said that the, there's no, the only difference between my day and nowadays is the players are more recognisable. But he said, all these lads are just like I was at their age. All I want to do is play football. I don't want to get involved in anything else. Just put the ball in front of me. Let me play football. And he said, I used to play, you know, have a bath, get on the bus and go home. Roy Paul, I think, said, was uh, one of the original hard men, wasn't he? I think I've read something that he was a, a very tough uh, character. I was, yeah, I, I think hard hard man is a bit unkind. It, it, when, you, when you think about the, some of the some of the players you'd put that to, he was a yeah. he was a very elegant player. He was a tough player. When he went in for a tackle, I mean, it was, it, before my time as a, as a spectator, my dad uh, was was very fond of Roy Paul, um, and in, and in in his day, he never let the club down. You know, we talked a while back about Joe, Johnny Hart, who was, who was a club man through and through, and, and Roy Paul was the same. And he was enjoying this opportunity to meet people and talk about something he loved, which was football and Manchester City. Yeah. Um, Peter Reid came into the dressing room because it was in those days, you, you we were there early enough to on a match day, so we weren't interfering with with anything. Um, and in the uh, the ninety one ninety two season, uh, we had a defender that came to join us was Michelle Vonk, and the story right. was P- Peter Reed said, "What's your name, son?" He says, "Michelle." He says, "No, I don't have any Michelles in my team. Your name's Michael." 
<laughs> but what I, what I, my, the, my, my memory is so much of that season and the season before was just this bolt of blue lightning on the right hand side. David White, I tell you what, for a winger, he knew where the goal was. My goodness, he scored some cracking goals in those two seasons. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah, great memories. So yeah, uh, but I think 92-93 is where it starts going wrong. And my theory on Peter Reid is that um, and Peter Reid was, um, his language was somewhat industrial most of the time, to put it mildly, according to the people who uh, knew him. And, and I have a theory that this sort of approach only works for so long. So you can only F and blind at players for so long before they get a bit bored of it. There was also some concern among the fans that um, Sam Ellis was having too much of an influence on our football style and we were going more route one. So a bit more hoofball than we've been used to, which is interesting when you, again, when you look back at recent events with United and, and the fans saying, you know, you know, don't care if we win or lose as long as we play decent football. And the fans were starting to, to notice this. Um, there's a lot of dispute whether that was the case or not. And I think David White said he, had uh, expressed concerns to, to David White got on very well with Sam Ellis, uh, and the story was if he stood up to him, he could be quite a bully. If he stood up to him, he was fine. David White questioned our use of long ball tactic, and the story is that Reed showed him some videos that that proved that there were times when we needed when we actually used the long ball tactic, we actually played better. But a lot of the fans weren't convinced. We also uh, in 1993 we paid 2.5 million for Terry Phelan, which when you look at the 2.5 million we paid for Keith Curl. A feeling was a pacey left back, but yeah, I, I'm not sure how crucial he was to to the makeup of the side. The stories then started coming out that the money had run out. So that 2.5 million for feeling was it, and and there was no more. Reed and Swales were having this uh, proxy battle through the columns of the Manchester Ruby News because that story was in the Evening News. By the time we get to the end of '92, the calendar year '92, we're, we're actually in mid-table, which isn't bad. But the fans weren't happy and. Certainly, the, the, the Swales Out movement was starting to gather pace. And there'd been quite a stormy annual general meeting in October 92, where, where there was the calls for Swales to you know, look at the, his achievements or his lack of achievements at City over the last, well, 20 years he'd been in, involved by then, uh, and perhaps consider his position. Uh, the fanzines, there were a few fanzines around at the time. Uh, the fanzines were starting to uh, get on Swales back, which is kind of, it's more about... It, and it's not about the league position. It's not that we're struggling at the bottom. It's more about the football and the fact that perhaps there's, you know, there's, there's not much money about. That's all we've got to hang our swales out hat on for the moment. That's the hook. This was a massive, massive change in the way football was being presented. Yeah. Um, you know, the f- first season with Sky Sport, you know, live matches after live matches after live matches. And you started to see an awful lot more um, that. Sky had a big program to fill, so they, they were behind the scenes. They were because of the money that they were putting in. They were access, you know, literally access all areas, as they are now. I mean, you want to know what's going on in a club? Talk to the Sky guy because you know he, he seems to be everywhere. Peter Reed still had that. I would say the vast majority of the fans behind him, and this is where Mister Swales wasn't happy because if he wanted to do something it would be an incredibly unpopular decision with a, a club and its fan base that you you yourself were not popular with. So when it when it actually, you know, we, we finished that season 92-93 in ninth place, but 
in, in the, the, the whole tumultuous change of the Premier League, again, that wasn't such a bad performance. It, it's a step backwards from two fifth place finishes. But the fan base wasn't kicking off against Peter Reid by any means. The, the, the fan base had started, as Colin has said, to, to sort of start digging into Swales. But there were some, some, you know, David White played 50 times for us, scored 19 goals in that time. Nearest to him was a lad called Mike Sharon with 14, who'd come up through our junior ranks. Gary Flickcroft was in the team at this stage. Uh, you know, a lot of promise, a, a, a very, very good player, a box-to-box player, no, not not certainly not in the Colin Bell vein, but he could have been. So we, it, it, there was a lot. To, to actually look at that was was promising in a way. Peter Reed had dropped his appearances back. He only turned out twenty four times in in that season. We had that disastrous time when Spurs decided to become our nemesis. Uh, they beat us home and away in the league and knocked us out of both cups. Which um, was um, yeah, and that FA Cup defeat was the start of the end, really. For yeah, yeah, it was, was it was shocking. really for the Swales yeah. out move. Uh, I just say I just found a quote: um, the nineteen ninety two AGM, a guy called Brian Williams, who was a shareholder, uh, is reported to have said to Swales, "You should consider your future as chairman. Perhaps the greatest service you could give to the club would be to step aside for somebody else." You've been chairman for 14 years without a major success. You have not been a lucky chairman and you should give someone else a chance. To which Swales is supposed to have responded, I take your point, but I will not be taking your advice. So, mm. so but of course, Peter, can, Peter Swales can still command the majority of the board. He's got about 30% of the shares. Greenalls have got 20%. His pal Stephen Bowler has got 20%. So, you know, if it came to a... If it came to a show of hands, he would lose. When you actually counted up the number of shares, he was untouchable from that point of view. But but to pick up the point that, that um, David had made about Spurs, the, the catalyst really for the Swales Out movement, which had been gathering gathering for a little while, was this FA Cup game back in March 1993. And it's very similar to the Blackburn FA Cup game a few years later, which was 2000 and Seven, the quarterfinal, where Pierce was manager and we lost. You know, there was so so much conf- not confidence, but there was a great feeling going into that game that if we could beat Blackburn, you know, we'd be in a, uh, a set cup semi-final. Yet, it, yet we failed miserably at Blackburn, and 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 the fans turned on um, both both the board and and particularly Pierce. And the FA Cup game at, at Spurs was kind of how old, 15 years, 14, 15 years before that. But it was the same sort of thing. So Spurs went 2 0 up. We got it back to 2 1. Then they scored uh, another one and then a fourth one. And there was a what started off as a minor disturbance. But then a, a, a quite a few fans spilled onto the pitch and the, the, the game had to be, uh, the players had to be, game had to be stopped, players had to be pulled off. Police horses appeared. It looked a lot worse than it actually was. And certainly Gary James is quite sympathetic to the City fans, saying they were they, they were given a worse press than they deserved because apparently there was worse crowd violence at other games that day. But something sort of snapped. You know, the patience of the fans snapped completely at that game. It was really the start, the, the real start of the mass swales out movement. And my pal Jed Isaacs, who writes along with me for King of the Kipaks and was writing, writing for King of the Kipaks back in 93, he particularly was, was vitriolic saying, uh, I was, uh, Swales was very upset by this. 
uh, movement. Uh, and according to Peter Swales, although as we've already seen in the first two parts, you can't always rely on what Peter Swales says. He wanted to stand down at that point, but others talked him out of it. Well, I don't know, but name names. Yeah, well, well, yeah. yeah. Well, that particular uh, game, because the uh, the Platte Lane end of the ground was under development, all the yeah. Tottenham fans were in the north stand. What was alleged was that the Tottenham fans were throwing sharpened coins into the Kipax. Um, now, mm. sort of the noisy end of the Kipax was the Platte Lane end. The, the the area towards the north stand of the Kipax um, were sort of, I would say, not the more serious, but they, they didn't make as much noise. But they didn't care. They were just throwing things into the Kipax. And, and that was what, I mean, a game that we should have won. A kid called Naeem, I think he, he only played about half yep. a dozen games for him, but he, I think he got a hat trick on that day. Um, uh, the player we mentioned a minute ago, uh, Phelan, scored one of our goals in that 4-2. But Is that the guy it, that it, uh, chipped David David Seaman famously. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. yeah, when he was playing for Arsenal, that's the one. You know, it's it was you know one of those games that you it leaves you very feeling very angry because quarter final, I think it was. If if yeah, we'd have yeah. gone through got well, through that, then you know the, things could have been very very different. But it was it was this, you know this big big changes in the way football was being presented in uh, that in '92 Coca Cola had got uh, sponsorship of the League Cup. Um, which was very, very good for me uh, because uh, my company sold an awful lot of Coca-Cola. Um, and my national account manager was a Burnley fan, very big Burnley fan, a uh, young man by the name of Mick Corrigan. And he said, if City play at home, you'll be watching it. I'll make sure you are. Um, oh, nice, nice. And one of the Joe's brother, was he? No, 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 no. Oh, right, right. Okay. I, knew, I knew Joe's brother. He was also called Mick Corrigan. Yeah, Mike no, Corrigan, he, yeah. no nothing, nothing to do with uh, with our Joe. Um, and on one occasion, uh, it was the 93-94 season, he said to me the, in the build-up to the game, we'd, we'd actually been to Notts Forest. Uh, this was, again, quarter-final. Uh, we'd been to Notts Forest and drawn, uh, and we were playing uh, back at Main Road. And it said, I've got your tickets in the director's, I'm hoping, sorry, to get your tickets in the director's box for you, your wife and your daughter. But he said, I won't know until I actually go and pick them up. That's what I've requested. That evening, we were not allowed to leave the stand. From Well, we, we didn't didn't really want to go anywhere. We were having such a wonderful time. But there was such a crowd outside the main stand. We were inv- insisted, people insisted we stayed in for our own security. Mm-hmm. So that by, by sort of 93, 94 season, it had got dreadful. And mainly... Um, was the way which we can backtrack a little bit uh, was how Peter Reid was treated um, early in that um, 93-94 season. Yeah, which we'll come to. I mean, um, just just to go back to the Spurs FA Cup game, I say Swales apparently described it as his worst day in football. And what my my pal Jed said in King of the Kipax apparently was, um, that's a very telling comment as he's presided over two relegations Mm -hmm. and countless embarrassing team performances. If he's so cut up about a few people on the pitch, why didn't he resign in 83 after the Luton game? So, so the feeling was he was more embarrassed by the fans being on the pitch than he was by the performance. But as, yeah, as we saw a few years later at Blackburn, FA Cup quarterfinals can have that effect on people. Uh, and patience with Swales was, was losing out. So, so we went in the, into the 93-94 season. 
Swales made this ludicrous claim at the beginning of the season or during the summer that he had six million pounds to spend. But even if you did have six million pounds to spend, you wouldn't say that. But this simply wasn't true. We didn't have any money at all. And then with with kind of the pressure growing on him, he, he made what was probably his fatal mistake and appointed his pal John Maddock as general manager. I'm not sure what happened to Jimmy Frizzell at this point, whether he was still there or what. But John Maddock was a former journalist. He worked for the Daily Express. Uh, and he became, Peter he became Peter Swell's confident when Peter Swell was at Altrincham and he was at covering... He, as a journalist, was covering non-league football. And uh, one particular game, well, the one particular game that, that kind of um, was interesting was uh, towards the end of August, 24th of August, we played Blackburn at Main Road uh, and we lost 2-0. And this was memorable because it was my son's first game. I'm amazed he stayed a City fan after that, but the game was awful. How old would he have been? 90, 93. He would have been coming up. So he would have been about six, I think, at that point. Of course, being a, a you know, the average six-year-old, he was a bit fidgety and the game was was dire. Blackburn beat us quite easily. I mean, 2-0 probably flattered us. But of course, afterwards, there was now now traditional swales out demo on the forecourt of Main Road in front of the uh, main stand. And he may not have enjoyed the football, but he loved the demo. So he wanted to come back next week to go to the next one. Not the not the football, to the demo. What he, sort of size, what sort of size were those uh, demonstrations? How many people would have been involved, do you think? Eh, it's hard to say. You know, you're talking about a few hundred, maybe a thousand. What do you think, Dan? I, I would, I'd say 150 max. Okay. Um, it, it was a lot of noise from, from a, yeah. a relatively... I mean, at that time, you were so brassed off, you just went home. You know, and, and standing out there and, and shouting and screaming didn't, wasn't, you know, wasn't having any impact. Cause you're talking about a man with the thickest skin in football. <laughs> um, and, and he, he, he not only had he brought this guy in, he, he brought him in with this, the sole aim of sacking Peter Reed so that he could say he didn't do that. Yep, yep. You know, and but by this time, we, we said early doors uh, when we were first talking this that power corrupts, uh, and I've I've seen it at that around that time in a lot of clubs. You know, there was a, a big businessman in the city was also the chairman of the football club, and he was loving it. He was loving all the attention, yeah. and Swales was, you know, it was Mr. Chairman, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Chairman, and he was by this stage, it got to the point where there's only one opinion, and that's mine. There's only one view, and that's me. And if he, he, he seriously thought that he could hoodwink the city support by saying, "Well, you know, if it was down to me, you know, I'd have kept him," but you know, I've appointed this man and this man thinks he should go. So, you know, and, and it's actually John Mad And it was, it was John Maddox that sacked him, not Peter Reid, because it was John well, Maddox. That, that, well, they had this bizarre press conference after the Blackburn game, where instead of Reid, it was Maddox. And he came in thumping the table, apparently, saying, I've got the power to hire and fire, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, and, and it was from that point onwards that the early, uh, very early in the 93, 94 season that things just, everybody at that point is that enough's enough. We, we have had enough. And there, there were regular, it wasn't, it wasn't every single home game, but regular protests. Sometimes it depended upon the result. You know, if, if you, the game you just watched was appalling, you felt like you wanted to shout at somebody. And so you went and stood there outside and did that. Uh, but it, it was, uh, in relation to the number of people that were in there, in in the game, the Coca-Cola Cup game that that I uh, was at, um, we beat, got beat two one. The attendance of the on the night was fourteen thousand, 
And so, you know, and there weren't, you know, most of those had gone, long gone, um, after, <laughs> probably gone before the end of the game, if they were feeling that. And we, we, in that, the role that we had with Coca-Cola, we were allowed to present the Man of the Match Award, which was a very nice, uh, heavily branded leather jacket. And Victoria presented that to Steve McMahon. And all he could say was, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. I'm so, and we, we Edsa and I both said to him, so you actually have got nothing to be sorry about. You know, because he really tried his, you know, run himself into the ground. But we also, by this time, and and it has to link in with Peter Reid, we had players who had stopped trying. Um, uh, and it, it got to the point where we were as annoyed at the team. Now, you know, we've just had a classic example of, at United, you know, that we, we, we almost down tools to, to get rid of or change the the picture of what we want um and that's that's how bad it was in that 93 94 season when i tell you the top scorer scored six goals um yeah that so, so tells you yeah so all of a sudden everything's kind of turned uh, and as david rightly said the players didn't look i remember watching that blackburn game the players didn't look interested at all uh, and at the end of that game that was our fourth game of the season we still hadn't won we drawn one and lost three so we're in the in the relegation places. We were behind teams like Sheffield Wednesday and Oldham Athletic and Wimbledon and you know and, and of course United had just won the first Premier League. So that probably didn't help the feeling when when just a couple of years earlier we were finishing ahead of them. So again it's this constant cycle of things turning round. So where a couple of years, two, three years earlier, everything had looked so good to us with Howard Kendall and it just needed one more push you know, to, to get into the top places. Now we're down at the bottom and they're up at the top. Uh, and there's obviously their era of success has started. I think that the, the Peter Reed sam Ellis combination had run its course anyway. And certainly that seems to, that challenge of what, what David said. So my theory is that a guy who shouts and swears at his players will, will only have a certain shelf life. And Peter Reed, when he went to Sunderland, did much the same thing. I think he lasted about three seasons, and then the performances tailed off and, and, and that. Sam Ellis was, you know, was playing much more Route 1 football. The whole thing had kind of fallen apart. The appointment of John Maddox certainly didn't help because he was a man who knew nothing about football. The story is that Reed was asked to sack his assistant, Sam Ellis, but again, this was just another deflection tactic. You know, John Maddock was a deflection tactic, as David said. No one believes Swales. The, the request to sack Ellis was, again, just another way of trying to appease the fans. But the fans at this point were not going to be appeased. Swales was the man causing the problems. It's a little bit similar, I think, to the, the recent situation with United and Mourinho, where the fans didn't like the football they were playing. And a lot of fans were quite happy to see the back of Mourinho and, and the, the ire was more directed at the ownership and the uh, Ed Woodward. And I think it's probably a fair comparison to make, really. Do you think, David? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. The, but it, it is very, very worrying that, you know, you think we've moved on a lot and yet we've a very similar set of circumstances in United. The, the players... Yeah. I mean, say I wouldn't. I wouldn't go so far as to say the players got the manager the sack uh, because he he earned that distinction all on his own. Um, but it, that's when the players stop playing. I don't care how you feel. You know, you're professionally being paid a lot of money. You you don't play for the manager. You play for the fans. 
And, and when you've got players who just you clearly see it, that, that game that we were at, the one I mentioned, the, the Nottingham Forest game, there were several players who I had admired and that night I was appalled by because I thought, you know, you're not trying from from any. I mean, I've, I've been following football for an awful long time. All you ever want to see is your team do the best. You might not win the game. You might lose the game. But it's when a player clearly isn't making the effort. And when you get two or three like that, and I'm not I don't mean having a bad day. Uh, I just went when they couldn't couldn't be asked to chase a ball that's been played, you know, maybe two or three yards in front of where you wanted it to be, and and almost almost walk away from it. And you know, they they know who they are, the professional people, you know, and, and you know, even all this time, it you know, springs to mind that watching players really, and, and I was I was appalled to to see that, and and it's that was the the start of what happened, you know, only yeah. a few years. Later, yeah, because um, obviously we, Reed was then sacked, as I think we all expected, and we were eagerly awaiting the announcement of the new manager. And I think people were talking about Terry Venables, Steve Coppel, who was you know making a bit, bit of a name for himself. But <laughs> one name, uh, on what Swales had to do at this point, his last chance really, he was in the last chance saloon. He had to get the appointment right. The fans, you know, wouldn't have, fans would just would not accept an appointment which wasn't top-notch to take us back to the higher reaches of the division. What we got was uh, Brian Horton. Brian Horton. Yeah. That's exactly what the papers said. A lovely guy. And and City tried to play football under him to to give him it. But he wasn't that successful as a manager. His first game was actually quite good. 3-1 win at Swindon. But the the crucial event of that season was, uh, the first crucial event was... um, Five days later, so this is early September, Francis Lee announced that he was going to mount a takeover. Now, actually, so obviously this was huge news. The end was in sight for Swales. Lee said it wasn't actually a takeover. He was just after a place on the board. But obviously, it was going to be a fight to the death. And, um, yeah, there's no there's no doubt who the fans wanted. You know, you've got Francis Lee, great player for us against a, a failing chairman. Swales was determined to fight it out, and he, he used the trick that um, Alistair McIntosh used uh, before the Shinawatra takeover, uh, saying he was having talks with another party about about selling out. Whether it, there were some names mentioned, but nothing ever came to light. So uh, I suspect it was just a delaying tactic of his. Now, of course, the one thing that Peter Swales didn't have at this point was a P- was a Peter Swales who could come in and make the peace between the two sides. It was a war to the death, uh, and Lee was determined to win it. So the first home game was against uh, QPR, and Lee and, uh, and the recently departed Colin Barlow were at that game. Uh, and someone described it, it was like being a Christmas panto. You know, Lee appeared and got cheered to the rafters. Swales appeared, and he may as well have been wearing a top hat and twirling a moustache. Um, he got booed like the pantomime villain. So uh, it came to the, the AGM was the, the following month, the end of October. And this was probably the, the stormiest AGM in City's history. Now, now, there was some support for Swales among the, among the attendees. But, of course, there was much more criticism. Uh, and one of the guys who was apparently most vocal and most uh, articulate in his criticism was a guy called Elliot Rashman, who was the manager of um, Simply Red. And he... He used the phrase city or a corner shop in a world of supermarkets. You know, we are a wagon wheels and bovril club. The problem was Swale still had the support of the majority of the shareholders, the, the big shareholders, Greeners and the Greeners and the Bowlers and his allies on the board. So uh, I, I, th- I think an attempt to get rid of him as chairman was voted 
won by a show of hands, but uh, hugely lost uh, when the shares, the actual share votes were counted. But this was the beginning of the end. Uh, Swales knew that the, the, the end was nigh. And whether it was a tactic, whether he genuinely meant it, he announced he would be stepping down as chairman. Well, he was still talking about an alternative to Franny Lee. And, and uh, as I said, unfortunately, Swales didn't have a Swales to, to resolve this. And at the end of the 93, uh, 93 calendar year, the 93-94 season, we were 17th out of 20. There were still 22 teams. And we were just two points clear of the drop zone. In fact, one of the people who was very vocal about in the vocal about criticising Swales, in the same way that Martin Samuel is, is the voice, anti-financial fair play voice, uh, was Johnny Giles, the former Leeds player, of course. And um, Johnny Giles was forever having a, was the focus of the media ire at Swales. Uh, and Johnny Giles was very vituperative about Swales and his chairmanship. So we've got a situation at the end of 93. Swales announces he's stepping down, but there's no obvious successor. Negotiations with, with Francis Lee and his team aren't going very well. Finally, after a, a marathon session, I think Francis Lee had to fly back from Barbados from his winter retreat. Beginning of February, well, Swales finally agreed to sell Francis Lee some of his shares. I think Bowler sold him some as well. People think it was actually a takeover. It wasn't. Francis Lee didn't have the majority of the shares. I think he and his consortium only had about... Francis Lee had about 15%. His consortium had about 7 8%. So they just had just under a quarter of the shares between them. But he, it was enough. Peter Swales was gone. He stepped down. And he still had, at that point, over 10% of the shares, mind you. Uh, following that moment, um, Fanny Lee took over. And Peter Swales was never seen at Main Road again. And, of course, he died uh, a couple of years later. So finally, you know, after... 73, after over 20 years of Peter Swales, we finally had a new chairman. And what a false storm <laughs> that was. Perhaps that's the next uh, series of podcasts. Well, that's what I'm thinking, guys. I don't want to get too <laughs> deeply into the Franny Lee era because I sense that that could be our new history pod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that was it. You know, that was uh, the end of the Swales era. Uh, but, you know, it wasn't the end of our troubles, of course. So I think what we needed to, to do, guys, is just to maybe from each of you... Um, Maybe a little bit of a summary of uh, the Peter Swales era, just a, a general impression, something for us to finish off with. Start off with David. If you had to kind of summarize the Peter Swales era in uh, in thirty seconds or a minute, what would you what would you say? Well, it, it was a tumultuous period of time. I still believe he had City at his core and at his heart, um, but. Quite often, and I think it, when we mentioned Francis Lee briefly, the, the businessman that gets involved at that level with football, the idea, the business ideas, what's made you a successful businessman, you seem to forget when you start getting involved in sport. If you look at the, um, not so much the nowadays, but when executive boxes started to come into the fore, you know, if you if you dug deep enough, you found the fan that uh, a Trebor Bassett at Leeds. You know, it was one of the national account managers that went to his company and said, you know, we could do, you know, we we could have a box here, and he was a big Leeds fan. So every home game, there he was with him, you know, and, and we can bring our clients and we can do this, and it, it was a very good idea. But from a business investment, it was a shocking return. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the amount of money that they were being charged, you, know, you, you think it was, and gradually that you know that those sort of things stopped happening. Most of the exec boxes are in private hands, not company hands. 
because companies don't don't see the value anymore of that sort of stuff. But in in managing, that's what Peter. Unfortunately, he he stopped being a businessman at some point, and I feel he got so that power became more important to him than the club. It, you know, it 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 became the Peter Swales show, which is a shame because uh, you know he 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 had devoted a lot of time, a lot of energy, and I firmly believe it. it you know, today as much as any other day, people behind the scenes at all the football clubs are doing the best they can. They're working very hard to make it work, um, and I think Peter Swales did. It, you know, and it, it wasn't successful. Uh, some closing words from you, Colin. You've done a lot of work on this, so how would you sort of round it out and how would you give some closing remarks about the Peter Swales era? Well, well of course, it started with boardroom upheaval, uh, the Joe Smith purchase of uh, Frank Johnson's shares, and that's where Peter got involved. Whether he was a City fan, we'll maybe never know. Genuinely City fan, we'll, we'll maybe never know. He started off in 1971, 72, 73. This brash, confident, full of himself character ended in 93, 94 with this, basically this broken man. And you could say, I think David had it right. He was interested in the power. He had this obsession with being bigger than United. And there were times during his reign when that objective was in sight, but for, for the want of some far-sighted, cool-headed planning, we threw the opportunities away. And so the research I've done for this has, I don't want to be cruel to a guy who's no longer with us, uh, you know, and put tw- 25 years of his life into City. But I think we've seen a Peter Swales that said what people, he thought people wanted to hear, a man who was only too keen to de- deflect away from his own failings, a man who should have had the ability to stand back and say, this isn't working out, I'm not the right man for this job, we need someone else. And that could have happened a few times during his tenure. Uh, But the longer it went on, the more uh, wedded he became to the power. I think a lot of it had to do with his position at the FA, he was on the FA Council, he was chairman of the International Committee, you know, he got all these jollies to England games, it got him a lot of status in the game. And, And I think he just lost sight of what made him, as David said, he lost sight of what made him successful as a businessman. He, he got wedded to the position, regardless of his performance. Uh, and if you think of any company, anyone who ran a company as badly as he ran City, well, would have been kicked out long before you know the 20, his 20-odd 20 years were up. So it was certainly a memorable era. Great team in the 70s. We had, you know, around the time of the early 90s, we had another very good team. But you know, it, it, there was no strategy. It was just reaction, knee jerk. Yeah, spend some more money, stop spending money, get rid of a manager, and the whole thing just fell apart. And I think it left Franny Lee a mess which he couldn't sort out. Well, we may very well be getting into that. So, guys, I think we'll wrap it up for there. I want to just thank these guys for all their hard work on this. We hope you enjoyed this uh, three-part series called The Peter Swales Era. We'll be back with you after the next game. So, uh, until then, let's just bid farewell to our guests and thank them for their participation. So, thank you very much for your insight and uh, all of those wonderful stories, David Gregory. It's been a pleasure. And Colin, you have done so much research. You've been a champion. Thank you so much for all you've done for this three-parter. It's been quite intense, but I've learned quite a lot about the era and the the years that came later. So, it's been very interesting for me as a City fan to get that fixed in my head, really, and get get that information. 
Okay, guys. So as I said, we'll be back with you after the next game. Until then, have one on us. Have a Christmas one on us. And up the blues. I love it, Kiki.